indeed that is our prayer that we would trust you more. We pray that even though we have faith in you, we ask for more faith. We ask that we would trust you more and more, repent of our sins more and more, believe in you, follow you more and more as we lead to we lead our lives all the way to the point in which you take us or Christ you come to this earth. We pray we would love you and worship you. I pray this is true for all of us in this room, those of us who are believers and those who are not yet followers. We pray that you would give them the grace to trust you more. We ask this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as always, we have such a wonderful privilege to look into the Word of God together. I hope you've brought your Bibles with you. Please turn to Romans 3. If you haven't brought a Bible, we do provide Bibles for you, and uh, you can grab one and turn to Romans 3. If you're not familiar with the Bible, there is a table of contents at the very beginning, and you can find the book of Romans. Turn to that page. It's toward the end, and uh, chapter 3 is a part of chapter 3 is what we're going to be looking at for our study this morning. You know, I think it would be good at this juncture to remind you what is the nature of the kind of preaching that we do here at NBC, and that is sometimes called expository or expositional preaching. If you've been here very long, you know that we're pretty committed to going verse by verse through books of the Bible. What you may not know is that preaching through books of the Bible is not technically the definition of expository preaching. Expository simply means to posit truth from. So expository preaching really is taking the meaning of a text or texts and developing a sermon based upon the meaning of Scripture. What we think of and technically is, is defined as through, preaching through books is what's called lectio continua, lectio continua, which is what a lot of expository preachers engage in. But the meaning of the text is the message of the sermon, and that's why you find some preachers who don't preach through books, but are nevertheless expository preachers like Charles Spurgeon or Jonathan Edwards. They preach expositionally, though often they did not preach through books of the Bible. And of course, there are examples to the converse. I won't name anyone, but there are preachers who portend to go through the Bible, and they go through a book, but really they just use some theme to talk about whatever they want to talk about and not discuss the message of the actual text. Well, all that to say, from time to time, we put our Lectio Continua on pause, but not our expository preaching. Not for a topical sermon, but for an exposition on a theme or a subject. If you're into theology, this is akin to systematic theology. And today, we continue a study on what the Bible teaches us about the Christian duty of disciple-making. What is biblical evangelism? There are many methods. John Moore talked about some of the methods that they engaged in. Some of these methods, some methods that you come across in churches or movements, some of them are more or less biblical, some of them are more biblical, some of them are less biblical, but I'm not really here to talk about methods of evangelism. I'm just here to talk about the core of what it is to make disciples. What I want to do is lay out these foundational realities given to us regarding Christ's command in the Great Commission. The Great Commission, traditionally Matthew 28, 18 to 20, end of Matthew's magnificent gospel a few weeks ago, was the end of our five-year study of that wonderful book. 
And what we learned is a simple fact that we are commanded by Jesus Himself to take the gospel to the world. This is the core activity of a disciple maker. It is an act of obedience. We shouldn't have to be coerced, tricked. We shouldn't have to be told that somehow people's souls rest in our power, whether or not they go to heaven. It is a simple act of obedience of the Savior who brought us from darkness into light. Moms and dads, it begins in the home. Make disciples of your children. If you honor Christ, if you want to glorify God, if you want to worship God, you do it first by obeying the words of Jesus. Friends, if you're a Christian, your Savior has given you, has brought this wonderful truth, this gospel to your heart and to your mind. We ought to do what Peter would say, and that is to declare the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Jesus, in His final words, said, Make disciples. And the question really is, about your activity, will you obey? So that's the core activity. Make disciples, and that core activity, of course, is obedience. After we studied that activity, we looked at another thing Jesus said, and that was in His kingdom parables, particularly a parable we looked at in Mark chapter 4, and there we discovered what is the core attitude of disciple-making. That attitude is the attitude of trust. The sower sowed seed, and he slept. He can't affect growth. He can't cause it to take root. He can't change the nature of that soil. He may seek to persuade their mind of the truth of the gospel, but he cannot persuade their hearts. That is something only God can do. He simply trusted God who does the work. He obeys, he scatters a seed, and he trusts God to do the work on hearts. Then last time we were together, we studied the core ability of a disciple maker. Peter said, be ready always. So that ability is readiness. You're ready to give the reason of the hope that lies within you. You're ready to tell people the wonderful gospel of Jesus. So these sort of make up the character qualities of a disciple-maker, obedience, trust, and readiness. And it is with those characteristics in our heart, obedience, trust, and readiness, that I now want to look at our task. What is the gospel message? If we're to obey Jesus, what are we supposed to be sharing? What is the seed we are supposed to scatter? What is the reason for the hope that lies within us? What truths are we supposed to tell? In one sense, to make a disciple, according to Jesus, is tell them everything that He's commanded us. But what's the starting point? Where do we begin as we, as we try to make a disciple, as we begin to explain someone who perhaps has heard about Jesus or maybe not heard about Jesus, and we want to begin explaining to them the truth of the gospel, where do we begin? What do we need to have in our minds? Now, one thing I think good to do is go back to the fundamental idea of making disciples. What is the objective of making disciples? Are are we there just to tell them that God loves them and has a plan for them? I just want to remind you that is true for even lost people. He has a plan for them. For people who reject Him, He has a plan for them. That's true for everybody. I don't think that's the ultimate idea. Are we there to just procure some sort of fearful decision about heaven and hell and just try to get them afraid enough of hell so that they'll repeat a prayer after us? No, ultimately, the work of a disciple-maker is to introduce someone to God. It's to introduce someone to God. You want them to know God. Hell is a terrifying place of eternal burning torment, 
But the worst part of hell is the fact that people are separated from God for eternity with no hope. Equally, the joy of heaven ultimately is the eternal presence of God, the all-encompassing presence of God. So I think a wonderful way to think of the gospel and our job as disciple-makers is introducing people to God. Declare the excellencies of God. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards said about this. The redeemed have all their objective good in God. God Himself is the great good which they are brought out to the possession and enjoyment by redemption. He is the highest good and the sum of all that good which Christ purchased. God is the inheritance of the saints. He is the portion of their souls. God is the wealth and treasure, their food, their life, their dwelling place, their ornament and diadem, and their everlasting honor and glory. They have none in heaven but God. He is the great good which the redeemed are received to at death, in which they are to rise to at the end of the world. The Lord God, He is the light of the heavenly Jerusalem and is the river of the water of life that runs and the tree of life that grows in the midst of the paradise of God. The glorious excellencies and beauty of God will be what will forever entertain the minds of saints and the love of God will be their everlasting feast. The essence of making disciples is to bring to people's minds the truth of a triune God, the triune God of the gospel. You want to introduce them to our triune God, the Trinity. And the pinnacle of Trinitarian activity on earth is the story of the gospel. You give them this truth and you rest in that same triune God that He can use that truth to regenerate a heart. He can bring about life in that seed that you just sowed. And your prayer is that God will, by your presentation or representation of gospel truth, of Trinitarian gospel truth, is that will take root in their hearts and they will follow in faith and repentance. That this is what we'll be doing. We'll be looking at a message of the gospel from a Trinitarian perspective. In fact, this is a great way to arrange your thoughts. If you haven't shared Christ very much, maybe you're thinking, well, what do I do? What do I say? What are the things that I need to point them to? Well, a good way to think of it is to think of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. A great way to conceptualize the basic truths of the gospel because all of it is to introduce to them God. All right, let's read our text. I'm going to read Romans 3, 21 to 31. And from it, we will see some pointed ideas about the character of a God who would save. Romans 3, 21 to 31. Follow along as I read it out aloud. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time that He might be the just and the justifier 
of the one who has faith in Jesus. And what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. For is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You all familiar with John Wooden, longtime basketball coach at UCLA? If you measured NCAA college basketball coaches and championships, championships, Wooden is the best by a long way. He won 10 national championships as head coach. The next best is Coach K, five national championships, followed by Adolph Roop with only four. Only Wooden and Rupp coached major schools and had a 80% or better win ratio. I went down to uh, UCLA for a uh, tennis invitational. I wasn't playing, I was watching. And uh, I came up to the arena and of course there is that giant bronze statue of John Wooden standing out front. I did not put a lay over his head. This man is ensconced as probably the best coach of all time. It's, it's a question, really, if anybody will ever surpass Wooden in terms of greatness. Well, I was reading not long ago that Wooden, one of the first things he would do every year is he would take the freshmen, the new incoming freshmen aside, and he would have a little lesson for them right before the very first practice. And at that lesson, he would teach them how to put on their sweat socks and properly lace up their shoes. His point was, their feet are the foundation of everything. Good footwork leads to good movement, leads to quicker offense and more effective defense. Running through the offense and defense depending really all on having that kind of foundation. If you don't have that solid foundation, your play becomes sloppy and you lose your footing and you possibly lose the game. And this is precisely what Paul is doing in the first few chapters of Romans. Particularly in Romans 3, 21 to 31, he's, he's giving us the footing of the gospel, the foundation of gospel truth, and the grounds of the gospel truth is ultimately in the character of God, in the character of God the Father. This passage, these few verses are absolutely vital to the message that we are to carry to the world. Someone said one time that you can tell the maturity of a Christian by how many notes they have in this part of the Bible. Everybody bent over and starts writing notes. <laughs> this is the foundation to all that we understand about the gospel, about our salvation. And I really believe that the condition of the American church is in such horrible state because they do not anymore have this as the foundation. They're driven by the winds and toss. They're driven by market research and a desire to be big and have money and feel, fill their own arenas. A friend of mine some years ago did some work in Russia. It was before the Iron Curtain fell. And uh, so his ministry really was to underground churches. And he would travel. He wasn't uh, the permanent missionary, but he would travel to Russia a lot. And in America, there was an explosion of uh, a new explosion, really, of the church growth movement. It had been around since the 50s, but there in the late 80s, there was another sort of explosion in the church growth movement. And so he 
a little bit less discerning minister than I would appreciate. He packed up his bags and put a bunch of church growth material in it and brought it to the first meeting with all these pastors and tried to hand it out. And these pastors said, we, we know about the trend in the American church, about turning the church into a business proposition. We know about this thing, and quite honestly, it's useless to us. Saddleback Sam, Sam is meaningless to us. These thoughts, these ideas, these, this mentality is meaningless. Could you go back home, get a bunch of books on the doctrine of salvation, and bring them back? We want what actually grounds us, what gives us a foundation, what will last even though we don't have facilities and money and large congregations. We need something that lasts. Bring us books on the doctrine of salvation. Well, that's what's presented to us here in Romans chapter 3. What's presented to us is the doctrine of salvation from the, from the standpoint of the character of God the Father. There are three ideas which flow from this text, and perhaps you want to write these things down, relates again to us introducing people to God the Father. Three things, maybe you want to put these down. First of all, our effort to make disciples, we want to articulate that God is the God who has spoken. The God who has spoken. Did you see right out of the gate, Paul says, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Of course, Paul, in the immediate sense, is talking about manifested in the faith of those who believe and follow Christ. But in the larger context, if you look at that whole section, what you find out is that Paul has been saying that God has manifested Himself. He has spoken to all the world. Paul made it clear that God has made Himself known in a couple ways. First, in a broad sense, this is back in chapter 1, God has made Himself known in what theologians often call general revelation. God made Himself known to all people. How does He do that? Well, in one way, God reveals Himself to the hearts of man. Everybody has a basic sense of morality. People even have, you don't have to teach children even some sort of concept of the divine. People understand that. They're, they're born understanding that. We have to teach them otherwise if we want them to go against that. People understand a, a morality, they understand beauty, they understand right and wrong. They're, maybe it's not regenerated, maybe it's not purified, maybe it's not Holy Spirit driven, but there is a concept of God, of right and wrong, of truth given to every human being. Beyond that revelation Paul showed us there in Romans 1, it's also in nature. You look at your own body, you look at your own life, you look at what God does in creation, you look at the cosmos, all of these things point us to the reality of the divine. Now, Paul goes on to say that because of original sin, all humans reject that revelation. Nevertheless, there is that inner instinct of God, that revelation. God has revealed Himself to all men in a general sense. The other way God has made known Himself to the world is through Scripture. Paul would say this as he talks about the Jewish people. They were given, these Hebrews were given the oracles of God. They were given definitive truth, not just the generic broad truth, but definitive things that God says about Himself to mankind. In fact, the writer of Hebrews 
would say in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. These last days He's spoken to us by His Son, and we appointed an heir of all things. And of course, the Son, Jesus told His apostles, they would be like the prophets. They would be His spokesmen. They were to reveal God's Word in written form. Again, back here in Romans chapter 3, there's this basic idea that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. There's that generic, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. There is the special revelation of God. And again, and later in 24 and 25, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith, this was to show, it's to manifest. God is demonstrating who He is with the message of Christ not just in what the prophet said, but in the, the culmination, the, the um, fulfillment of all the things the prophet said came in Jesus. God speaking through His Son, working through His Son, His message of redemption given to mankind in specifics by prophets and apostles. And so Paul has made this clear. God has made Himself known, not in vague, undiscernible, unknowable ways like a postmodern poem that everyone just sort of guesses what it means, and it can mean something different for everybody. No, he specifically laid out in plain language the message of Christ crucified, the propitiation of sin by His blood. God has spoken. He's spoken broadly to all, but He's spoken specifically through His prophets and apostles about His Son with the message of Christ crucified and raised. God is a God who speaks. God is a God who has spoken. He has given us His Word and preserved it through the ages. Now this reality is difficult for people to swallow. Because if God has spoken, we are now responsible to listen to those words and to abide by those words. You're trying to make a disciple of someone, what you'll realize is sometimes you just have to spend some time here, maybe even some weeks or months just discussing and asking questions and learning and finding out that this person does not even believe that God has spoken. They, they reject the whole idea that God has the power and has indeed revealed Himself and His will to us, the truth of salvation. I'm not saying that someone has to understand and defend verbal plenary inspiration to be saved, but they do need to have the basic concept that God has revealed Himself. And He's told us what it is to be saved. God has spoken. I didn't come up with this. I don't know who did. Probably has been around in some form or another for some years. You know the most difficult passage in the Bible? Is it something about predestination? No. Something about God acting supernaturally and splitting a... An ocean or stopping the sun? No. Something about what God says in regard to homosexuality? No. What's the hardest passage, most difficult passage in the Bible? It's the first four words of the Bible. In the beginning, God. This tells us God has complete authority over all, and He has spoken about it. All that He says is true, all that He says is right, all that He says is powerful, all that He says has complete and utter authority. So when God speaks, we are to not only listen, but abide by what God has said. Whatever God says about predestination, we should believe it. 
even if we can't fully understand. Whatever God says about His supernatural works and activity and ability, we should believe it. We don't hold Him to our series of tests as though we stand over God in judgment. Whatever God says about genders and marriage, whatever God says about anything, we are to believe it and abide by it. And whatever God says about salvation, we should believe it and abide by it. When you're introducing someone to God the Father, you're telling them God has spoken. He's spoken of Himself. He's revealed His righteousness. He's revealed His truth. He's revealed His own doctrine of salvation. He's revealed the nature of man and our need for salvation. He has spoken. The climax of God's speech, of course, is the revelation of His Son, which is recorded by His appointed apostles given to us in the New Testament. Introduce people to the God who has spoken. Second, we are to introduce folks to the God who is righteous. The God who is righteous. You see in this text the repeated reality of God's righteousness. 21, the righteousness of God has been manifest. 22, the righteousness of God. 25, this was to show God's righteousness. Verse 26, it was to show His righteousness. That word righteousness, it's akin to the concept of God's holiness. It is moral perfection, yes, but it's really what's behind moral perfection. It's His total transcendent holiness. It's something completely separate from the grime and filth of humanity. That's why Paul says we all fall short. We're all stained. We're all, we're all covered with that grime came this morning early and Gary Hockett and some other guys were working hard because there's a lot of wind this week and blew a lot of dust over everything. Everything on the lanai and all the tops, the tables and everything was covered in dust. By virtue of the fact that we're humans, we're covered in that grime. We're filthy. We are not holy. God is separate. God is holy. God is perfect. God is righteous. Paul says, we, like I said, we fall short of His glory. And so His holiness is that fascinating, mysterious, and fearful perfection which, because of our sin, creates a fathomless chasm between us and God. This glorious righteousness is what Paul is talking about here. This glory, this holiness, this righteousness is revealed to us in the Word. And when it's revealed to us, we become instantly aware of our lack of it. Now, because God is righteous, He must execute His holy wrath upon all sin. By virtue of the fact that He is holy and that He is righteous and that He is just means that He must execute a perfect, full system of justice on all sin. There cannot be one sin that is not accounted for. There cannot be one evil that is not punished to its fullest extent if God is truly righteous. And so the Bible teaches that God has stored up wrath for sin, all sin, all unrighteousness. And throughout the Bible, really from beginning to end, what we see is a God who is acting in great anger. 
We shy away from the anger of God, but it's everywhere on the pages of Scripture. I think one reason we shy away from it is because our anger is always full of sin, right? There's rarely one of us can ever be anger, angry and it be righteous. And Paul said, be angry and sin not. Well, that's pretty much impossible for us. Very few of us can be angry and not sin. Our, our anger is almost exclusively caused by sin and impatience and, and pertinent desires. God's anger is absolutely perfect. The Greek word back here in, in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, as I understand the word that's always used for God's wrath in the New Testament is the word orge, and it does not mean flying off the handle. It doesn't mean rage. God doesn't lose it, so to speak. No, it is a settled, eternal, justified hatred. God has a settled indignation against all evil. He could not be God if He didn't have wrath against all evil. Again, our sin is so filled with evil, it's hard for us to even understand and imagine a God that could be angry and sin not, yet He is. He is completely just and forever perfect even in His wrath. Psalm 78 says, who may stand in your sight when you are angry? So this wrath of this righteous God should make us fear Him, right? It should make us afraid. Psalm 90, we are consumed by your anger, troubled by your wrath. Isaiah talks about the wrath of God. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is darkened. Jeremiah 7.20, behold, my anger and my fury shall be poured out upon this place, upon man and beast, upon trees of the field and fruit and ground. It shall burn and not be quenched. And then we watch it happen in history. See the wrath of God poured out at Babel? We see the wrath of God in the worldwide flood. We see the wrath of God on Sodom and Gomorrah. We see the wrath of God over and over on the people of Israel, on the Philistines, on the Egyptians, on the Babylonians, on the Assyrians, on the Edomites, Moabites, Ammonites, Amalekites. We see the wrath of God poured out on individuals like Achan and his family, Uzzah who touched the ark, Nadab and Abihu against Miriam, against Aaron, even against Moses even against Saul and Solomon and Rehoboam, against pagans, people not on the people of God, like Sennacherib who mocked God. So the wrath of God is inescapable. It's all over the Bible. And some people say, well, you're just talking about the wrath of God of the Old. That's the God of the Old Testament. God's different now. He's sort of matured beyond that wrath. He's much more loving and caring now. Really? You remember what happened at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry? One of the very first things he did before even he'd chosen all the disciples, John chapter 2. He walked up on the Temple Mount. It was the first of two cleansings of the temple. He made a whip. And in anger, he drove out all these criminals who were veiled as priests. He called out woes against them. He called them criminals. He called down God's judgment and wrath, the same judgment, using the same language that was in the Old Testament, he called that same language and deployed it against the enemies of God in the New Testament. And then you read about the God of the New Testament. You see this later in the New Testament. Later in Romans chapter 9, you see God's wrath in Ephesians 5. Because of these vain words, the wrath of God is coming. 
See in Ephesians 2, Colossians 3, 1 Thessalonians 1, and of course the culmination of God's wrath in the book of Revelation. The dam of God's wrath, holding back God's wrath is broken. God's wrath is unleashed no longer with any kind of restraint. And judgment comes. At this point, someone may say, why does God have to be like this? Because He is righteous. He cannot let one sin go unpunished. He must have a settled hatred and planned punishment for all evil, every last molecule, so to speak. Because if He doesn't, He is no longer righteous, no longer just. Habakkuk 1, God, you cannot even look at sin. Have you ever been in a situation where an injustice happens? It happens every day if you watch what Congress is doing. And you think to yourself, where's the justice? You're asking for holiness. You're asking for righteousness. You're asking for the right thing to be done. Think about God. He sees everything, not just what's happening on Capitol Hill. He sees even the minds and hearts of people. He sees even your own mind and your own heart. And God's character binds him to punishing all evil, all sin, even your evil. He cannot just ignore it. He cannot say, well, I really like this person. I think I'm just going to forget about their sin. He has to deal with all of it. Folks, in order to understand the cross, in order to gain a great understanding of the gospel and the love of God, you first have to do terms with God about His wrath against your sin. You must come to a conviction of sin. You must come to conviction of the righteousness of God. In order to delight in salvation, you must come to terms what you're saved from. What are you saved from? The wrath of God against your sin. It's a dominant theme in Scripture, the necessary wrath and righteousness of God. People don't like this. A.W. Pink said it's sad to find so many professing Christians who regard the wrath of God as something for which they need to make an apology, or at least they wish there were no such thing. And a lot of Christians who don't like the wrath of God. He goes on to explain that while many Christians may not be willing to openly say that, he, that it is a blemish on his character, secretly, they certainly don't delight in the fact that God is righteous or just and may even resent Him for it. He says, people harbor the delusion that God's wrath is not consistent with His goodness and so seek to banish it from their thoughts. You realize if you diminish the perfect wrath and justice of God, you not only diminish the beauty of God's perfect justice, you diminish the beauty of His love. Because God loves someone who deserves His utter wrath. Now, why all the discussion about God's wrath? Verse 24 and 25, the beginning there, it uses that word I used, we studied some weeks ago, propitiation. Big word. You ought to learn it. It's in the Bible. That word means appeasement or placation. You might even say satisfaction. This is a word in reference to God's wrath. He must demonstrate a wrath against your sin. He must demonstrate this, and for Him, for him to be appeased or placated for His wrath against your sin, He must demonstrate that justice 
but Jesus becomes the one who bears that wrath. Isaiah 53, we looked at it again weeks ago as we studied the cross of Christ. It pleased the Lord to bruise Him. The Lord laid on Him the sin of us all. That doesn't mean it made God happy, but it means His wrath was satisfied. His justice, His righteousness was satisfied. He who knew no sin became sin for us. I believe this is allusion to what God spoke about Jesus at His baptism. In Him I am well pleased. Again, if you diminish God's justice, you diminish His wrath, you diminish His righteousness, which means you're diminishing His love and His kindness and His justice, you're diminishing His holiness. This is why some evangelistic training will teach you to go and to begin with the demands of God. Jonathan Moore talked earlier about Living Waters Ministry. That's one of the things they're sort of known for. They start with the law of God. And they bring the truth of God's law and God's righteousness to their heart and say, are you living up to this? And of course, everyone has to, if they're honest with themselves, has to say, no, I, I failed. I'm deserving of God's wrath and God's justice. You can't avoid this. In your presentation of the gospel, in your attempt to make disciples, don't, don't let your sensitivity or your aloha spirit get in the way of giving them the truth about God's righteousness, about the fact that God will indeed, without question, execute justice. And the question is really whether that justice for your sin is going to happen on Christ or on you for eternity. Now, those who receive the propitiation of Christ by faith, Paul says in verse 25, these are the ones who avoid the wrath of God and can relish the righteousness, the righteous love of God. That's how the gospel deals with our guilt, not by God diminishing His perfect justice or His perfect wrath, but by sending a substitute. And the gospel deals with our culpability our guilt with this propitiation. So when we introduce people to God, we introduce them to a God who has spoken. And from His Word, we learn that He is a God who is righteous. The glorious news then is number three. We also introduce them to a God who makes righteous. We introduce people to a God who makes righteous. Number three, the God who makes righteous. Let me show you how Paul develops this in our passage. Look at 23 all the way to 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God... And, and the Greek word there, and, can also be the word but. I think the ESV translators would have done better to put the word but. Are justified, because it's in contrast to not glorifying God, but are justified by His grace as a gift of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to receive by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins, it was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just, or you could say the just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here's a way to understand this. Man-made gods, think of those gods, those Greco-Roman gods that Paul had preached against and was convincing people to uh, repent of. All those gods and any god that man creates is simply an exaggerated form of a human. Those gods, those Greco-Roman gods, may have been really amazing humans. 
They may have been physically powerful humans, and usually they were quite bad people. Yeah, they maybe did deeds of justice and peace, but then they would come down and rape somebody or cause some sort of war or battle or fight among themselves in some sort of cosmic fight. That's man-made gods. So our gods, the ones who we envision and make up, they can act justly, perhaps. They can simulate justice in one sense with punishment or righteous anger. Or they can show mercy. They can be forgiving and loving, but they, like any human, can never be both at the same time in the same place. Sometimes they can forgive, and sometimes they can be judgmental. The God of the Bible... He's not like our gods, Paul is saying. God, in this plan of salvation, in this gospel, God can be both the just, the one who executes perfect, holy, justice, wrath, all the time, every time, and at the same time, be fully loving and merciful and kind. Maybe you've heard that phrase, the exclusivity of the gospel. It's a phrase theologians use to talk about how Jesus is indeed the only way to salvation. No other name given among men whereby we can be saved. No one comes to the Father but through Christ. And the truth of exclusivity is not merely established by the fact that God decrees that Jesus is the only way. It is also true because, or is primarily true, because there indeed is no other way that God can maintain His justice than with the gospel. This is the only way that God maintains His justice, by providing His own Son as a sacrifice. And that way He can execute perfect wrath, perfect justice, and at the same time demonstrate perfect love by justifying us in faith. Underline that word in the ESV, it says, to show other translations say set forth or declare or present. You see it twice, verse 25 and 26. Why does God save you? To show His glory, to demonstrate His glory, to declare His righteousness, to demonstrate His holiness. And so Paul says in verse 27, what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. He goes on to say, we don't diminish the law. It's not that suddenly God just sort of sweeps the law away and says it's of no use. No, we uphold the law. The law remains intact. God's righteousness remains intact. He is going to hold everybody accountable to that. But those of us who are in Christ, we stand in Him covered with His righteousness, not our own. And all these things, the gospel tells us that God is to be glorified. God the Father is to be glorified, not us. Jew, Gentile, Christian, background or not, if you have faith in Christ, He will justify you. He becomes in you, you as a demonstration of both His righteous justice and His righteous love and mercy. And there's no room for boasting in that gospel, is there? He is to be boasted in. I realize that some of you here are here. Perhaps you've known about Jesus, maybe the story of Jesus, basic concepts, but maybe this 
presentation of the foundational character of God in the gospel, maybe you realize finally, once and for all, you have nothing in your hands to bring. You simply have to cling to the cross of Christ, believe in Him and Him alone. And again, if you do that, you have this glorious declaration that you have been justified by this merciful, kind, loving, perfectly righteous God. The same God who would punish you eternally for your sins is the God who now justifies you and you can be with Him forever. Let's pray for all of us now as we take this glorious message to the world. Father, we thank You so much for what You've given us. We thank You for the truth of the gospel. We thank You for Your character, Your glorious, wonderful character that You are both just and the justifier. What a wonderful truth. What wonderful reality that we are called to declare to the world. Help us, to take, help us take this message of you, your character, what you've accomplished and what you will do to the world. Lord, bless us as we seek to do this. It'll be nerve-wracking. It's tough sometimes. Lord, remind us of the presence of your Son, Jesus, by His Spirit. Others, Lord, that are here, we do pray that you will save them, regenerate their heart, compel them to have faith in Jesus and turn from their sin and follow after him based upon your wonderful, glorious character. It is indeed your kindness that leads us to repentance. Help us realize that kindness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you'll stand with me for a benediction. Benediction is simply from 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. Amen. Amen.